Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. Welcome to our final episode of the year. It's Alison Savas, Client Portfolio Manager at Antipodes. As we exit 2022, we have the US Federal Reserve trying to stick the perfect landing, Europe teetering on the edge of recession, and China finding its way out of COVID zero. Volatility around global economic activity remains high, and this will weigh on valuations in 2023. But with global equities down almost 17% in US dollar terms as we record, and the worst performance in a calendar year since the 2008 financial crisis, there are opportunities to allocate capital at attractive valuations. So in this episode, I have four Antipodes investment team members joining me to share their thoughts on their particular areas of expertise as we head into 2023. We have Graham Hay on hardware, industrials and commodities, Beth Everett on healthcare, Sunny Bangia on domestic Asia and emerging markets, and James Rodder on domestic developed markets. I'll ask each what they think will be the most significant event in their area of coverage in the year ahead, a stock to watch, and a part of the market investors should avoid. So let's get into it. And first up, here's Graham Hay, Antipodes Portfolio Manager. Graham, how are you today? I'm well, Alison. So the first question for each Antipodes Portfolio Manager and Analyst we have today is, what will be the most significant development to watch in 2023? And in your case, that's going to be in global hardware, industrials and commodities. Well, look, I think uh, our sectors are inherently cyclical. Um, macro is, is ever present across our end markets. Um, but increasingly, uh, policy is playing a, an even or, or at least as, as significant a role as the macro. We've seen a number of initiatives uh, across our end markets, be it the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act. Uh, we've seen developments in uh, European uh uh, policy settings uh, to initiate green green programs. Um, all of these all of these uh, policy uh, tools will continue to shape uh, the way uh, investments are are allocated across our end markets, um, and they do provide an interesting backdrop. The interplay of that policy toolkit and the macro next year, as we go into what is clearly a slowing economy, will be probably one of the most significant factors for us to consider um, across our end markets in 2023. And I think, you know, something we've been talking about for a while now is, is that we expect policymakers to lean, you know, much more heavily on fiscal stimulus um, and that we can see, which is what you've touched on, we can see just new investment cycles emerging and uh, new winners in that, in that environment. Now, moving on to our second question, um, can you share one stock in your area of coverage that you think could perform well in the year ahead? Yes, well, hopefully we'll have more than one, but um, I, I have one <laughs> for you. Um, um, so, I, look, I think, you know, as we look at the landscape uh, today, I think energy market fundamentals remain uh, extremely well underwritten. Uh, we continue to observe, and we've touched on this in past um uh, both written and, and podcast form, uh, uh, that the industry uh, is is simply not investing at the levels required to meet uh, energy demand uh, or rebuild uh, spare capacity. Um, and it looks as though that um, setup will result in continued high and possibly rising energy prices as we go out over the next couple of years. Now, clearly there's 
uh, recession risks uh, in 2023 that do pose some risk to demand. But we find that on average equities in the sector remain, remain priced for a rapid decay in returns, uh, which we think is pretty unlikely. Past collapses in, in, in returns have been preceded by um, periods of overinvestment. Um, today, for instance, uh, we, we don't see that. Uh, capital investment is still uh, really just barely recovering from its its low points in 2020. Uh, and historically, when we look at, um, uh, for instance, the uh, uh, composition of the S&P 500, uh, the energy sector today uh, uh, makes up about 5% of the total market cap of the S&P 500. Um, mm. uh, interestingly, uh, it comprises just over 10% of S&P profits. Um, historically, those two relationships have been uh, relatively similar. So you can see that equity valuations in uh, energy remain very depressed uh, relative to the profit stream that they're delivering. So uh, with that in mind, we think um, one of the interesting stocks uh, is Total Energies, which is um, the French uh, uh, major who uh, uh, came into the portfolios uh, uh, earlier this year. Uh, the company, uh, we think, has, has got one of the best track records uh, of delivering consistent uh, profits uh, in the market. Um, a lot of the European majors cut, ended up cutting dividends uh, at the bottom of the last cycle. Uh, Total was one of the few companies that were able to, sus- to sustain their profits. Uh, and they've taken a long-term view on their industry and invested accordingly. Um, that's allowed them to build a very um, high-quality uh, upstream portfolio. Uh, but increasingly, they're complementing that with... Um, smart uh, renewable investments across solar and wind. So they're building a much more diverse energy portfolio than they've had historically. Um, This company has historically generated on average over the last 20 years a 16% ROE. And we think that if the market is prepared to price in that return profile, uh, we think that there's still substantial upside in the share price from here. Uh, that's, That's backed up by a growing dividend stream as well as share buybacks. So that would be one where we think um, the market remains, um, uh, uh, shall we say, sufficiently skeptical um, uh, to make it an attractive investment in a a less certain environment next year. Mm. And I think one of the points on Total that we often talk about at Antipodes is that, you know, by the end of this decade, um, Total's oil business is expect you know is expected to shrink to around thirty percent of sales, um, and while whereas I'll generate around fifty percent from gas, and with the rest from electricity and, and biofuels. So really talking to that diverse energy portfolio that you called out in your answer just then, and and Graham finally a stock or a part of the market that you think investors should avoid. Yeah, look, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, we, we it's, I think it's just worth reminding that we have been through an era of malinvestment and and, it, uh, and we've come out the other side of that in 2022. Um, uh, and there's been a significant reset in market cap across many parts of the market. But I think investors should generally be wary of sectors that attracted uh, too much capital uh, or, and or mm-hmm. whose business models were premised on the idea that uh, uh, the cost of finance was zero, the cost of uh, mm. materials and energy was close to zero, uh, and that uh, you could subsidize your customer acquisition by selling products for less than they cost to make. There are a number of examples um, today in real time that are, we're, seeing, we're seeing get repriced. Um, 
new entrants in the electric vehicle space would be a good example of that. But but there's mm. other examples across the market uh, in e-commerce and consumer tech as well. I'd just be wary of uh, jumping back into those parts of the market that, that whilst they may be down from their highs, they still uh, in some ways were a creature of uh, a very unique market environment leading up to the end of last year. Mm. Graham, thank you so much. Now, before I let you go and I introduce our new team member, I've got a little interview fun. Now, the Boxing Day Test Match. This is an iconic cricket test match held in Australia every year, which begins on Boxing Day, uh, where Australia plays another world-class cricket team. And this year, it's Australia versus South Africa. So, Graham, who do you think will win and by how much? Okay, the trick question at the end of the interview. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, you know, Australia—they're uh, they're very hard to beat at home historically, right? Uh, I think they've got—they've uh, probably got the edge on South Africa based on what I saw in the first test. Uh, so I'd have to go with Australia, uh, and I'd say by um, uh, by a closer match than the last one. Uh, let's say by uh, uh, a magnitude of say five wickets. Graham, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And next, we're going to bring in healthcare analyst, Beth Everett. Great to have you on the podcast, Beth. Great to be here. Well, my first question for you is, what will be the most significant development to watch in healthcare in 2023? Hmm, For healthcare next year is when we'll start to see aspects of how the Inflation Reduction Act might play out, particularly in terms of drug price negotiation. So at the start of September, the first 10 drugs to be subject to the negotiated prices will be announced. That's followed by an undefined price negotiation process that will last nearly a year before they've published the final prices. A key question for us is really how the negotiation will work in a practical sense and what principles might actually be used to set the price. The legislation defines only a price ceiling, which is a minimum 25% discount, but the actual negotiated prices could be much lower. And for most drugs, there isn't actually a a floor for how low those prices could be set. We know a bit about what the companies might be asked for, financial information such as the R&D costs, the extent to which they've already been recovered, current unit costs for production and distribution, those kinds of things, which do suggest the cost recovery might be a key factor. But the process also seems to consider information about the relative benefits of the drug versus other therapies on market. Surprisingly, it isn't really clear whether the price will be set with reference to the value that the drug actually provides, though. And it, it, it can't use the concept of a quality-adjusted life year, which is actually used widely in other jurisdictions because it's explicitly inclu- excluded under the new law. So given all this uncertainty, we'll be watching with pretty keen interest to see how the process works and the degree of price cuts that are actually imposed. This legislation is really important. It could have a really material impact on the value that companies can generate from developing and commercialising drugs, particularly small molecules which can face negotiated prices after just nine years on market. We expect to see companies increasingly commenting on the impact that the IRA is having on internal drug development decision making, including the discontinuation of programs that may no longer stack up financially, as well as the prioritisation of therapies and disease areas that are less affected by the legislation. Beyond drug pricing, another issue to keep an eye on in 2023 will be labour pressures in the healthcare sector and whether these start to show any signs of easing. We're seeing staff shortages in both surgical centres and hospitals and these could persist, which we would expect to continue to adversely impact surgical volumes. If we overlay those labour supply constraints with lower demand, as consumers who are anxious about the economic outlook choose to delay elective procedures, then 2023 could be a tougher year than anticipated and for the medical device companies in particular. 
Okay, so we have undefined price negotiation for drugs coming off patent, which creates uncertainty, but you think yeah. it could have some relevance yeah. to cost reductions and then also labour labour prices as well. Okay, second question. Can you share one stock in healthcare that you think can perform well in 2023? Absolutely. So Sanofi is one of our top picks for next year. We continue to see large pharmaceuticals as defensive given the macro uncertainty and Sanofi is well positioned to outperform given it currently trades at a 40% discount to peers. The management team has really consistently executed on initiatives to simplify the business, reducing costs and expanding margins. But what's arguably been lacking is evidence of pipeline progress. The strategy here though is clear. The best way for them to compensate for a historically narrow pipeline is to increase the number of candidates. And they're clear that they're using the best candidate, whether that's derived from internal discovery or acquisition. Sanofi is looking for potential blockbusters that will trigger the right degree of growth and value creation, rather than diluting their efforts across many smaller candidates. Consistent with this strategy, we're seeing Sanofi increasingly cut programs quickly if they fail to meet expectations, so that resources can be really quickly deployed to other targets. In 2023, we expect to see plenty of catalysts to drive increased depreciation of the pipeline potential. Firstly, there'll be two new product launches in RSV and haemophilia. We should get some data readouts for key development programs, including for Depixin and COPD, for Sanofi's CCAM5 ADC in a range of tumour types, as well as for amlitelumab, the OX40 ligand targeting antibody in atopic dermatitis. Management also expects to continue to make progress with business development as a mechanism for building the pipeline, and they're targeting a cadence of one to two smaller bolt-on acquisition each year. The other obvious overhang for Sanofi has been the Zantac litigation. In our view, the recent multi-district litigation summary judgment has materially de-risked Sanofi's potential liability, but this has not yet been reflected in the share price. The outcomes of the remaining bellwether trials starting in February next year should help to alleviate remaining investor concerns. Um, and actually, you know, Beth, one thing I really like about Sanofi is that it, it generates around um, about a third of its revenue outside of drug development. So it's actually quite within um, Big Cat Pharma. It's actually quite, got quite a diversified business. Now, one stock or part of the market that you think investors should avoid? Yeah, good question. We think the areas to avoid in healthcare are those companies with weak business models in the more discretionary parts of healthcare. This includes area that, areas that are not medically necessary. That might include aesthetics like anti-wrinkle therapies or cosmetic dentistry, as well as medical procedures that can be deferred like joint replacements. An example we'd give is a line which faces increasing competition from other dental manufacturers and third-party labs offering comparable services at a fraction of the cost. High-volume orthodontists and dental service organisations are increasingly switching to peer products and Align has been forced to offer new lower-cost products in response, resulting in price erosion and gross margin declines. Overlay this with the reduced consumer discretionary spend and we think 2023 will be a tougher year than expected for them. Wonderful, Beth. Now, one final question. Boxing Day Test Match, Australia or South Africa, and by how much? Oh, it has to be Australia. By how much? That's a tough one. Well, let's go with 100. (laughs) Wonderful, Beth. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alison. Okay, now we're going to change tack and move on to the domestic parts of the market. I'm joined by Portfolio Manager Sunny Bangia, who covers consumer and domestic services in Asia and emerging markets. Sunny, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Alison. Now, just as with Graham and Beth, your first question is, what will be the most significant development to watch in domestic Asia and EM in 2023? Yeah, well, I think um, it will be the 
anticipated a reopening of the Chinese economy, as that's been taking up a lot of the press time in the last few weeks. Um, as we now know, we have moved past some of the very important, crucial um, central government meetings where Xi Jinping has now cemented himself for um, another period of time. Let's keep it at that. And we are now looking to reopen uh, the economy. And this, this will be a very significant event, not just for the Chinese domestic market, but also the region of Asia. Um, impact will have impacts for us in Australia, but just globally um, as the second largest economy looks to reopen. Um, it will be an interesting uh, time ahead in 2023. Now, with that in mind, can you share one stock that you think could perform well in the year ahead? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we have to think about the reopening of the Chinese economy and what what that really means. Mm -hmm. And look, at a human level, what it means is that we've just been in a period or that economy has been in a period where people have been isolated. Um, You haven't had the normal social interactions that I think now we are taking for granted here in the West. Um, We've been in this two-year difficult period with a few stops and starts, of course. Mm -hmm. But as... Um, the economy reopens. I think what's really important is people will start to interact again. Um, social interactions will come back. Um, you know, we'll see people uh, going to entertainment functions, um, sporting events, um, and celebrating holidays. And with that, I think an interesting point will be what happens to um, you know. Uh, uh, businesses that are exposed to that part of the market. We like a business called Wulangi. It is the second largest Baiju white spirits maker in China. Um, this is a high quality, very strong structural growth business that has seen two years of earnings downgrades as the economy has effectively been in, a shut, in, in shutdown mode. Um, mm-hmm. So we're quite positive on this business because we do think um, as humans, when things reopen, we'll want to catch up and we'll want to meet each other. 80 to 85% of all Baiju consumption happens in social gathering events like around Chinese mm-hmm. New Year, um, other Chinese holiday periods. So there's a lot of pent up demand. Uh, we think that's on the horizon um, when the economy reopens. Um, the business, what we think on a, on a reasonable sort of earnings multiple is about on 18 times. So it's at a 15, 20% discount to global spirits businesses around the world. With one difference, we've got a structural opportunity here. We think the, the high-end Baidu market will grow in the mid to high teens. Um, so we think that's a great place to be for uh, a company like Wulangi that is uh, exposed to that structural growth and has that kicker from a from a reopening uh, in the domestic Chinese market. Um, so we like that one for, for next year. Mm. And actually, correct me if I'm wrong, Sunny, but I believe that 70% of Wulangi's um, uh, revenue is, is, well, 70% of revenue comes from on-premise. So it is actually a great way to play reopening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's got a big uh, on-premise angle, which is another reason why the business has had, um, you know, a little bit of a headwind for the past couple of years, which we know we think will, re- will turn into a tailwind now. Mm, definitely. Now, a stock or part of the market that you think investors should avoid? Sure. I'll look, I'll go with part of the market um, in, in domestic EM. So with the headwinds of China, 
Um, there have been tailwinds in other parts of EM, um, and notably in terms of invest- investors' preference. So whilst China has been a difficult place to be through one um, technology regulation issues which are now behind us, secondly, lockdowns in domestic China, and a thirdly, a weak property sector, markets mm-hmm. like India have been hugely in focus. Um, where they've kind of reopened their domestic economy a good one year ahead of China. The domestic market has bounced back. The foreign investors have flocked to that part of the market, re-rating India to now pretty high levels uh, relative to the rest of emerging markets, but also the rest of the world. So whilst we still like India on a multi-year view, we just think over the next 12 months, it could be a source of funding for other interesting opportunities that are exposed to one, the China reopening, and two, just other uh, cyclical parts of Asia that will benefit from uh, a reopening in, in China. And Sunny, final question. This one is right up your alley, and I will remind you that we can't do a whole podcast on your answer. Boxing Day Test Match, Australia or South Africa, and by how much? <laughs> oh, look, it's going to be um, an interesting one. Um, look, I'm going to go with Australia. I think um, coming out of uh, the recent Test Series, there's probably a bit of uh, good batting practice that was uh, uh, achieved and some of the batsmen are uh, in in good form. Um, Though, you know, Boxing Day is always a very big event. Um, Look, I'm going to say it's going to be a close one as well. I'll I'll say Australia wins um, by, you know, a margin of 100 runs. Sunny, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you, Alison. And that brings us to our final interview with Portfolio Manager James Rodder, who covers consumer and domestic services in North America and Europe. So James, last but not least, let's get into it. First question, what will be the most significant development to watch in domestic developed markets in 2023? Um, I might cover off on a a range of areas, Alison. I'll probably start with financials in developed markets. I think in the US, I think the big story could be more more regulation on the US banks. Um, there hasn't probably been a lot of market focus here, but the regulators are sort of making a lot of noises and talking about capital requirement increases. Um, and on the work we've done, that means that those changes could mean some of the US banks are actually short capital um, and at a minimum they don't have any excess. And so these are stocks that perform well uh, when they have excess capital lots of cash to return to shareholders through dividends and buybacks. Um, and on top of that, you know, obviously the, they may have some pressures on uh, on loss rates. So I think that's an area to watch. In terms of software, I think it's really going to be the year that confirms the return of uh, the suites, um, you know, the, soft, the broad software suites. Uh, think Oracle and SAP, which we've spoken about a lot. In terms of the industry cycle, I think you've had a lot of innovation. Um, and these, let's call them mega platforms, have now through uh, sheer weight of R&D dollars, but also complemented by a strategic um, pivots in their leadership two to three years ago, I think similar to starting Satya Nadella at Microsoft in 2014. Um, they've really attacked the cloud, improved their solutions, and they're now at the point where they can migrate their customers to their cloud solutions at increasing speed. And also where those suites um, are nimble enough and, and agile enough to be developed um, to add in those point products at some of the smaller software 
competitors have innovated in over the last few years, they can just add them in um, to better networked um, solutions and really sell those products with near incremental uh, sales and marketing expenses. So I think that's interesting. And look, on the consumer side, I'd say, look, how, how is the consumer going to um, hold up in different regions is certainly an area of interest. Um, and I think there's a good chance there'll be some divergence away from the trends we've seen in the last few years. So you've obviously had a you know, reasonably strong US consumer, and I think the question is now, will that run off as they lead global interest rates higher? Um, and does it happen just as the Chinese consumer exits lockdowns? So, you know, let's call it positive stimulus there. And the European consumer starts to lap the negative effects we've had in 2022 from, you know, extraordinarily high energy prices uh, in that region. So I think there you may have the trend of, let's say, the weaker part of the market in consumer globally being that, let's call it that North America or particularly US that represents um, say 65% of the index where, where, where most managers and most ETFs are overweight and, you, and you've got lapping much easier comps in Europe mm. and China. Um, mm. So I think that'll be, you know, something else to watch very closely. Mm. We covered a lot of ground there, James, um, which, is, which is great, um, across US financials, the software platform businesses, and then, um, you know, the consumers across the major economic blocks. So let's get into the stocks. Can you share or start by sharing one stock that you think will perform well in the year ahead? Yeah, sure. Look, I think sector-wise, um, the European banks are in a sweet spot, and I'll get to the stock in a second. Um, but broadly, I think they've – look, I mentioned US regulation before. They've sort of been through that in the lead-up to pre-COVID, and then the US is really, let's call it, catching up on capital levels that are much lower than the European banks. Um and now they've they've also weathered this storm of you know tough macro with extraordinarily high energy prices, um, but they've weathered it well with low loss rates and expanding NIMS due to due to sort of the move in interest rates. The stocks have been okay relative to that macro pressure, but now with um, let's say energy prices year on year being a tailwind rather than a head you know a large headwind that they were this year. Um, we think sort of loss rates look, um, you know, very, very manageable. Uh, improving net interest margins on slightly, you know, slight increases in rates as, as, as Europe catches up a little bit to the US. And extraordinarily amounts of excess capital on virtually, you know, every measure. It looks like it's a, a sector as a whole that's maybe on a 15% um, let's call it dividend plus share buyback type return. Um, and so you get that cap rate falling to single digits. You can pick up that payout plus some significant upside in terms of the share prices. Um, we own um, several names. Probably the one I'd point to would be would be Unicredit in Italy, which is you know particularly high in terms of uh, excess capital. It's about 30, 33% of the, the share price. The CEO um, is very keen to return all of that as soon as possible. Uh, then in terms of its, um, you know, price to earnings ratio stripping out that excess capital, um, it's closer to four times, maybe you know, near, near a six, uh, including that. And it's got a very, very low risk uh, lending book in terms of the types of activities it's, um, 
behaving in. It's it's largely funded, you know, sort of eighty percent of deposits are funded by uh, consumers, so it doesn't have the um, pressure with interest rates rising in terms of lifting funding costs. So it's at a very you know attractive starting point in terms of um, let's say you know, earnings return, uh, and there's sort of positives to come from that existing starting point in terms of uh, you know further increases in um, net interest margins and, and earnings um, that will really accelerate, let's call it returns to shareholders. And then a stock or a part of the market that you think investors should avoid? Um, look, I alluded to it at the start. I don't think the risk return um, is great in the US in terms of being exposed to the consumer, particularly for things that are highly discretionary. Um, think retail as the lead area there. Um, we've probably put out a lot of content highlighting that multiples in the US are still very high on a cyclically adjusted PE. Um, part of the reason is that profits are at record levels. And so if you look at a lot of these discretionary um, retailers, product manufacturers, all those types of things, you know, their, their earnings levels are significantly above COVID still. And a lot of that uh, has been due to supply-demand mismatch. And so if we m- return to a, a normal environment, those multiples are significantly higher than, than headline. Um, and then we add in perhaps a, a recession where earnings go uh, below trend Um you can see sort of some, some pretty bad outcomes. You have inventory clearing, uh, you still have wage pressure on the cost side um, and you know multiples can go up significantly, uh, mainly driven by lower earnings. Mm. Mm. So starting multiples much higher than, than, than perhaps what they appear at the moment. Yeah, I think, look, the headline multiple is something to look at, but you've got to adjust for the cycle. Um, and there's certainly some, what we would say are you know, quite weak businesses uh, that have just been through extraordinarily profitable periods um, and the risk is clearly to the downside from here. James, final question to wrap us up for the year. Boxing Day Test Match, Australia or South Africa and by how much? Um, I'll be there, definitely. Um, <laughs> and I think it's a pretty pretty easy answer. Look, there's a few, um, you know, they've obviously got a strong pace line up with South Africans, but um, I'll, be, I'll be cheering on Australia and I think I'll get the job done. Thank you, James. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Alison. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've covered a lot of ground, ranging from our views on energy markets, the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on drug prices, opportunities around China's reopening, a positive thesis around European banks and risks around the US consumer. From the Antipodes team, we wish you all a safe and happy holiday period and keep up to date with us in the new year at antipodes.com or following us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Individual stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any security.